Hello and welcome to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. Here's our host Sally Warhaft to introduce this week's guest. Emma Skye, she is um, a remarkable person. Uh, She has a great story to tell and has had experiences um, actually that I, I just can't think of another Uh, individual that has had the particular experiences that Emma has had um, and an ability to share them with other people through a a book that actually um, is so very well written. Emma served in Iraq and also in Afghanistan as a civilian advisor to some of the highest ranking generals in the US military. She brokered relationships and Deals and uh, and went in uh, well, open-minded and uh, 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 as I said, a very singular way of uh, absorbing the experience that uh, that uh, came upon her. She now teaches at Yale, and uh, we're so lucky to have her here in Melbourne. Please give her a very warm Wheeler welcome. Thank you. Emma, um, you responded to an email. You were working for the British Civil Service and an email landed in your inbox requesting civilian advisers to go to Iraq. Um, Please tell us about what happened and why you decided to take up that opportunity. So this was 2003 and the British government sent out this email saying, we want volunteers to go to Iraq for three months to administer the country before we hand it back to the Iraqis. (laughs) Three months, they said. So I was somebody very much against the war, but I thought I'm going to volunteer to go out there, apologize to Iraqis for the war, let them know that most people in the West most people in Europe anyway, were against the war. And I'll do my bit to try and help them. I mean, I'd spent almost a decade working in Israel-Palestine, so I had some useful skills in capacity building and in building relations between Israelis and Palestinians. So I thought I could bring those skills, do my bit for three months, and then come home. It was... uh... (laughs) Quite a different scene, of course, that you encountered uh, in Iraq to, to the work you'd done uh, for the Palestinian NGO. You, you take off to Iraq with no job description, no terms of reference, uh, one phone call and you got the job. Uh, you <laughs> arrived in... Uh, where did you actually Basra. land? In, in Basra. In the south, yeah. Uh, you were promised there would be somebody at the airport with a sign to meet you, and of course there wasn't. Uh, the very first bit of this story that captured my imagination was that you just sort of thought, well, of course there's no one to meet me, I'll go to Baghdad. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what happened next. <laughs> well, I, you know, I said goodbye to everybody at home. I said I was going for three months, so I couldn't just arrive find nobody there to meet me and go home. A lot of people would. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Basra was really, really hot to start with. And I thought, well, nobody's expecting me here. It's 50 degree heat. Um, I'll try Baghdad. And there was a plane, a large 
C-130 Hercules going up to Baghdad. So I got on that plane and arrived at Baghdad Airport. At Baghdad Airport, I found a bus that was going into town and managed, you know, took the bus, managed to go to the green zone and then turned up at the Republican Palace, which used to be Saddam's palace and had been taken over by the Coalition Provisional Authority. So I walked in and I said, hello, I'm Emma from England to come to volunteer. <laughs> now, they didn't need you in Baghdad. They didn't need you in Basra. They didn't need you in Mosul. You travelled to all these places and were moved on from town to town, region to region, but they did need somebody desperately to be the new governor, pretty much, uh, <laughs> in, in almost an old colonial style uh, of Kirkuk. Uh, now, tell us about that when you landed there and what you were thinking and what you found. Well, so, you know, as you said, as when I left the UK... I had no idea what my job was going to be. And so I wandered around trying to find a job because no one said, hey, here's the job for you. And so when I got to Kirkuk, I arrived in Kirkuk and they told me I was now the senior civilian responsible for administering the province and reporting directly to Ambassador Bremer, who was the overall head of the Coalition Provisional Authority. And... <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you are telling me this story. I've read the book. I've spent hours talking to you in the past couple of days and yet I'm still listening to it with a kind of... It is... The two things that are astonishing about it, one is that this is the way our wars are waged, um, <laughs> but also that they got you. You know, somehow or other, you were exactly the right person to be doing this enormous job. Well, I think the Americans thought, you know, you're British, you know how to do this sort of thing. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> I want to say it's not genetic, you know. I <laughs> I've not done it before. There's no handbook. I mean, I'd never run a town in the UK, let alone a province in someone else's country. So it was learning on the job. And you did this, I mean, it, and of course, this was a war zone and in your very first week in Iraq, you were nearly killed in your own apartment. Um, this was a serious, uh, dangerous situation, really, for the entire time you were there. Uh, how did you think through what your job should be, this idea of building relationships between so many different uh, groups at odds with each other? Well, there was no job description given to me. There was no job purpose. I wasn't told what to do. So first week, insurgents tried to assassinate me. So that was a bit of an eye-opener because <laughs> people usually need to know me for a little bit longer than that before they try and kill me. So that was, <laughs> that was week one. Um, so I realised, you know, we obviously have problems. There are people who don't want us there. But I quickly realised there were so many other things going on in the province. I mean, I would sit in the office of the governor in the provincial council building, provincial government building, and each day there would be lines and lines of Iraqis to see me. And they wanted to talk to me about their problems, their grievances and what they needed. And there were so many competing 
views, so many competing demands. And listening to all of these views, I understood that all the different groups were competing for power. It was after the aftermath of the overthrow of Saddam, there was a power vacuum. And the Kurds were trying to annex Kirkuk to Kurdistan, because if they thought if they got Kirkuk and its oil, they could declare independence. And all the other communities were trying to stop that. Now, before I went to Kirkuk, I didn't even know where Kirkuk was, so I had to learn all this stuff very quickly to understand why Kirkuk was so important and why there were these crazy things going on all the time. You uh, very, very quickly formed a bond with uh, the general uh, of the army for that uh, region. The colonel. The colonel. Colonel uh, Mayville. And uh, you described him, you know, your new best friend. um, (laughs) And he certainly uh, became very attached to you very quickly as somebody that clearly had very different ideas, somebody that was outside of the military, um, a fascinating insight into military and, and particularly at that top level that he was clearly somebody that wanted a different point of view. And tell us about that relationship. It didn't start well. <laughs> oh, many relationships don't start well. No, it, it, the beginning was not auspicious because I went to see him the day that my house got blown up. So I went to see him because I needed somewhere to stay. And I just wanted a tent to sleep in on the airfield, which was where the military was. So I you know, found that he was the guy in charge. He was sitting in the building and I went, introduced myself and said, it's all slightly awkward and embarrassing, but my house has been blown up and do you have a spare tent? And he was, you know, we're going to hunt them down, we're going to get them. And I was, you know, you are to do no such thing. They're attacking me because I'm a symbol of an illegal occupation. (laughs) All I want is a tent. (laughs) And, you know, I was furious, furious with him. And when I left, you know, a message was sent to me later in the day that a tent had been found. And when I got to that tent later at night, what they hadn't told me, but what I discovered was the tent already had seven men in it. <laughs> so that was, that was the new accommodation he'd given me. But I turned up to see him the next day, and I brought with me my laptop, and I downloaded onto it the fourth Geneva Convention. And I sat next to him, and I read it to him line by line, and told him that if I found him violating any of those articles, I would take him to The Hague. And, you know, this was early days before I realised that America is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. (laughs) (laughs) And you can't take Americans to The Hague. But I didn't know that. (laughs) He probably didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) So it didn't start well. But he thought, and he was enthusiastic by my arrival because he thought I was there to replace him. (laughs) He thought I was the first of the civilians come to replace the military. He was the commander of the 173rd Airborne Brigade. He and his paratroopers had jumped into Iraq. The biggest jump in history, wasn't it? And they were tired and wanted to go home. And they had in their doctrine this idea that the military does its bit and then the civilians come and take over. So when I came, they thought, great, this is the first of the civilians coming to take over. So he said, we're going to hang out together for two weeks. 
we'll share an office, well, I'll take you all around the province, introduce you to everybody, and I'll do a handover. <laughs> and so that's what happened for the first two weeks. <laughs> How long did you end up spending with him there? A lot longer, because I wasn't the first of the civilians, I was it. <laughs> and he got no orders to mm. redeploy. Mm. Eventually, uh, of course, the 173rd did move out, but you also... Uh, went as well. Uh, you went, uh, I think, with a little intermission back to the UK. Um, you then returned to work with General Petraeus uh, in Baghdad. Tell us what it was like to return. I mean, it, it's so fascinating that on the basis of your experience in Kirkuk with Mayville, um, the word had got around, you'd met other people, um, that the, the highest ranks, uh, you know, this British woman uh, has got to, got to come back and uh, keep giving us this advice. You returned to Baghdad, to the Green Zone. Tell us what that was like to, to return to Iraq um, with presumably different feelings about the entire conflict uh, but also to return to Baghdad, the centre, um, and a very different culture that you found yourself working in. So, in 2006, towards the end of 2006, I'd just been in Afghanistan, so I'd finished a tour of Afghanistan, got back to the UK, I was in London, when out of the blue I got this email from General Odierno. And... In this email, he said he'd just been put to be the commander of forces for the surge, working for General Petraeus. So he would be General Petraeus's deputy. And he said, would I come back to Iraq to be his political advisor? Would I come back with him? So I did what any sensible person would do on getting such an email. I just pretended to go gone to my spam <laughs> and ignored it. But... That only lasted for a few hours because generals have minions. And these minions tracked me down in London. They sent me a photo of my house on Google Earth with rockets pointing down at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, not again. Um, they said, you know, you, you can't really say no to a general. So I went back to Iraq to work as the political advisor first for General Odierno, and then when he left, for General Petraeus. And it was, you know, you think at that time, the civil war was in full flow in Iraq. The levels of killings was just off the scale. Every day there'd be dead bodies in the street, and some had been drilled through the head, some had been shot through the head in sectarian killings. And that would tell you who did it? Yeah. You could just tell by the way in which they were murdered who, who had done it. And it was really horrific. And everybody just thought the situation is completely lost. And, you know, I'd only gone back because this general who I really respected, admired and liked had asked me to. I didn't think that we could turn it round. I didn't have great hopes of that. But this was the period of the search. And it had an amazing psychological effect on everybody. My first conversation I had with General Odierno when I got back, I said, you know, this is 
the greatest strategic disaster in the history of the United States. And he said, we're not going to leave it like this. What are we going to do? How are we going to turn it around? And so we sat and sat. You know, the first few days were up really, really late, every night, discussing what was causing the violence. Got to understand what was driving this violence. And then what could we do about it? And what was your answer to that question? There were many different groups competing for power in a state that had collapsed. So we always tended to frame things in terms of good guys, bad guys, rather than understanding that fear, exclusion, grievance, power struggles was driving all of this. And that we needed to create an environment, a space, where people could live safely and people could compete for power, that there had to be a political process. If there's no political process, then people are just using violence to achieve their objectives. So we had to create political process and stop that violence. And to stop the violence, we had to divide people up between those we could bring into the political process and those who were just irreconcilable. And to put to know where that line was was really critical because you want to try and draw people out of the violence. But for those who are not prepared to go, then they have, they're going to be killed. It was a really interesting time in the conflict, the surge, because it was counter all logic in a way for the United States, of course, to, to have you know, decided to escalate at, a, at, at that moment when it would have been so much simpler to pull out. Um, but it, it, at some point in that period, was it then that there was a sense that this war just simply could not be won by force alone? Did, did that view ever change? Was there a moment with the military that you felt that was understood? Definitely. I mean, Petraeus was always about you can't kill your way out of an insurgency. So that was clear that, you know, he was it. It's really hard. It's hard, but it's not hopeless. You can't kill your way out of this. Have to do it through reconciliation got to bring people out of the fight, got to create ceasefires, got to create a political process. Sadly, um, the, I mean, I, I think the lowest point in this whole... Uh, if, 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 if we can ever talk about the possibilities of real hope in Iraq um, was after that time with the general elections and uh, um, the insanity, really, of, of America's decision to back Maliki after um, the election results clearly showed that he had not won. Um, tell us about that. Um, and, I mean, I'm clearly leaping ahead here because we're, we, we have a very short time, but um, these were the moments in the story you tell that just strike so, so hard uh, for me. Tell, tell us about that and how you felt about it too. Well, 2007 to 2009, that period we call the surge, brought about this dramatic, absolutely dramatic decline in violence. It and did work. It worked. And Iraq was headed in the right direction. All the indicators showed that. Public opinion polls showed that. Iraqis felt it. 
we felt it. And there was hope that the 2010 national elections would lead to agreements among the elites and that Iraq would then be headed towards you know, permanent stability. So the turnout for the 2010 elections was really high. People who had been insurgents stood as candidates, people who boycotted elections went to vote. And a bloc came together called Iraqia, and it campaigned on the platform of no to sectarianism, Iraq for all Iraqis. And that appealed to a cross-section of Iraqi society, and it won the votes of Sunnis, of secular Shia, of minorities, and it won the most seats in the election, won the most votes. Now, Nouriel Maliki, the incumbent, refused to believe the results. People never lose elections in the Middle East. You normally win by like 99%. <laughs> so he just didn't believe the result. And he demanded a recount. And then he used pressure on the judiciary and he tried to disqualify Iraqia's candidates. And the results still held, but he sat in his seat month after month after month. And he showed no signs of moving. And there was disagreement within the US system over what to do about this. So my boss, General Odierno, believed that the US should uphold the right of the winning bloc to have first go at trying to form the government, as in any parliamentary system. He didn't think that Ayed Alawi, the head of Iraqia, would be able to do it with himself as prime minister, but he thought it could lead to a deal between Alawi and Maliki or selection of a third candidate to be prime minister. Now, the ambassador, who was new to the country, new to the region, had a different view. His view was, Iraq's not ready for democracy. Iraq needs a sheer strongman, and Maliki's our man. Now, Vice President Joe Biden was Obama's point man for Iraq. So he came out, he heard these two competing views, and he decided to go with the ambassadors. He said, look, Maliki's our man, Maliki's our friend. Maliki will give us a follow-on security agreement to keep some US soldiers in Iraq. And maintaining the status quo is the quickest way of forming a government in Iraq ahead of the US midterm elections. To me, that was the sort of moral point of which there was just no return for, for, for the United States and, and, and possibly uh, for Iraq as well because it went against every single thing that they'd said they were there for once they'd changed their mind about being there for weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> uh, had to have some purpose. They had to democracy. have some purpose. So, I mean, at this time for you, your, your life in... Baghdad at this time, my reading consisted of sort of three layers. Um, you are spending a lot of time trying to, talking to Iraqis and Americans, all sorts of people, but it, at that local level of, of bridging relationships, of trying to understand what is going on. You're in the highest meetings uh, I mean, you're in the room uh, when Biden is there. You're in the room when President Obama comes to Iraq. Uh, you are in the room when Hillary Clinton comes, when Wolfowitz comes, when... They, I mean, it's it, extraordinary. 
the stories, uh, the, the things you must have heard in those meetings. And then on this other level, you're sneaking out of the green zone uh, <laughs> in order to remind yourself or to see for yourself what is actually going on in this city uh, around you. What was that like for you? to be doing those three different things at once? Well, I really wanted to help the Iraqis reach an agreement on the formation of government. And the embassy wasn't doing much. So the Is this when it was at Chris Hill was the ambassador? So the embassy wasn't doing very much. I think you describe him as an individual poison. Uh, <laughs> I know the word poison is, is in there. He wanted a lawn put in, a green lawn in the green zone for his ambassador's little patch of garden while the rest of you, of course, ran around just dodging bullets. Uh, <laughs> quite remarkable, actually, how one individual can poison. But please go on. So I was trying to push Iraqis closer to each other, so delivering messages from one group to another, trying to create a platform to bring them together. And I felt a deal was possible, but it required the highest levels to be doing it. It required all the effort of the US to be behind this. I was negotiating on behalf of the general. It required bigger than that. Dealing with Vice President Biden was, you know, at one level he's a really nice man, he's really funny. At another level, I thought, this is, this is terrible. You know, you hear about these huge blunders in history and you think, was there nobody in the room shouting, don't do it, don't do it? And I was in the room and I was pushed forward to speak to him. They said, you explain to him why what he wants to do is the wrong thing. So I was like, you know, Mr. Vice President, in, you know, in a system such as Iraq, in a very new system, you have to show people that change comes about through elections. If they don't see any change through elections, they won't believe in the political process, they'll revert back to violence. And he said, well, we often have elections in America and no change happens. <laughs> and, <go. laughs> mm. and, you know, I would try and use one argument after another, and he would deflect everything. And then he got really angry with me. And, you know, the general said, you even made the president, well, the vice president of the United States angry. But he got really angry with me. He said, you know, I know these people. My, my grandfather was Irish and he hated the British. <laughs> mm. You know, it's, it's in the blood. I'm like, this is not an ancient conflict. This is not to do with ancient hatreds. This is to do with modern power struggles. But That's key, isn't it, to, to understanding what was going on? Yes, I mean, for him, his learning was, you know, it's just like Ireland, it's just like the Balkans, it's in the blood. They grow up with it. Change is not possible. It's all to do with ancient hatreds. And that means you miss the opportunities to help people imagine a positive future and to help nudge them towards it. So that was the opportunity missed. He, you know, he was adamant that Maliki was our friend. 
He goes, I bet my vice presidency, Maliki, will give us security agreement to keep troops in Iraq. He lost. A lot of things were lost from that moment. Um, and in fact, I mean, your, your book is titled The Unraveling. And uh, indeed, that's, that's really what happened from that point on. Um, how does that make you feel? And, and what was your sense of how it made the military feel? Uh, you know, you, you knew soldiers from the, 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 the lowest ranked foot soldiers to the highest level. Uh, they've, they've, they're there for all sorts of reasons. Um, tell us about your experience of their dealing with this and how you felt about them. Well, I think anyone who served in Iraq during the surge looks back at that most amazing period because we had the right leadership, the right resources, the right strategy, and we made a difference. And so all the soldiers, they lived through that. They could see their area, which had been so violent, become stable. And through this process, they built up strong relationships with Iraqis, particularly with those that we call the Sunni awakening, the ones who rose up against Al-Qaeda. So we had a lot of them on the payroll. We were dealing with them all the time and built up strong relationships. Now, after Maliki got his second term as prime minister, first thing he did was go after the Sunni politicians, accusing them of terrorism and driving them out of the political process. And those were people that we knew really well. I mean, Rafi Asawi, deputy prime minister, minister of finance, could be a minister in any country, and he is forced to leave the country. And then Maliki goes after the Sunni awakening guys, and they're either jailed or assassinated or forced to flee. And those are people that we, that we know, and they're sending texts, you know, help, help, and we can't help. So it becomes, you know, you're watching this unfold, start to see Sunni protest. Maliki then uses the security forces to crush those protests. And it just creates a, such an awful environment that the Islamic State can rise up out of the ashes of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and present itself as the defenders of the Sunnis against the Iranian-backed sectarian regime of Maliki. And, you know, ISIS took over a third of Iraq really quickly. The Sunni population thought that ISIS was the lesser of two evils when compared with Maliki's regime. And the Iraqi army, in which the US had invested billions, just fled. They just didn't fight. And they left all their weapons, all their kit, everything for ISIS to take over. And when I went back to northern Iraq just after this had happened, and I heard stories of how Maliki had removed those officers in the Iraqi army, officers again who we knew, he'd removed them because he said they were too close to the Americans and replace them by people loyal to him. And those guys didn't have the skills or experience. They took the money that was supposed to buy food and ammunition for the soldiers, and they pocketed it. So Iraqi army, Iraqi soldiers, never received any orders to fight. No officers, nobody there, and that's why they fled. And so all of that, you see, not only the effort of the surge lost, but the effort to build up the Iraqi security forces. The whole thing collapsed. When you uh, talk to the, the people that you got to know from the military 
today. What are their reflections on it? I mean, everything they went for, worked for, you developed a very keen and very respectful uh, sense of their work for somebody that went into Iraq uh, wanting to stop the war and apologise for it. What's your sense of, of how um, the military would view that now, view what has happened with ISIS, with the entire unravelling? They view it with great sadness. I mean, many soldiers will just focus on what they did when they were there. They don't see the bigger picture. It's outside their purview. But they will look at what they did and feel proud of what they did. Others who see a bigger picture will feel that, you know, the military won. The military did their piece. It was the civilian side that let it down. So there's that antagonism between the military and the civilians. And there's anger that the rise of ISIS didn't need to happen because we had defeated Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So there's the anger that it was allowed to happen, anger that US forces weren't kept in Iraq, anger that the politics weren't managed better. So there is that frustration. And when ISIS came into Anbar and took over Ramadi and Fallujah, that really hit Marines who had served there because they felt that their comrades had died for something. The sacrifice had been to create a better Anbar and it had been better when they left. And you see the same with Mosul, with the soldiers who served up there because now it's hard to feel that the guys who died, died for something. The narrative, is, the narrative doesn't work. You know at the end of the day they died for each other. They died for the guy on the left and the guy on the right. They know that and they would have sacrificed their own lives for each other. But to know that all that blood and all that sacrifice has not been to bring about a more stable Iraq is, is heartbreaking. You, uh, you, you make it very clear that uh, George W. Bush went in far too hard and that President Obama was far too detached. Um, it's obviously US election year. Is there any role now for a particular kind of relationship between the United States and Iraq that could help put this back together? It's difficult now because the US withdrew its influence, not just its military, it withdrew its <laughs> diplomatic influence. Now there are 5,000 troops back, but the whole focus is on ISIS. And ISIS is a symptom of broken politics of a failed state. And unless the politics are dealt with, then you can just smash this iteration of ISIS, but the grievances will remain and son of ISIS will appear in the future. So Iraqis over the last weeks and months, they're not talking about ISIS, they're talking about their corrupt leaders. And there have been demonstrations leading to the sacking of parliament about a week ago when people just had enough they complained of these corrupt politicians. They go, you are thieves, you are stealing all the wealth of the country and you're not doing anything. 
So there's this public anger at the kleptocracy, at the incompetence, at the theft of the country's wealth. But Iraq now is hugely affected by what happens in Syria. Iraq and Syria have become one battlefield as such. And over 400,000 people killed in Syria. Half the Syrian people are, are displaced. So stability for Iraq also requires stability for Syria because they're so, so intertwined. So where should the emphasis be from not just America but, but the West? If, uh, you, you know, you rightly say the focus is on ISIS but it's not on the, the causes. What... What would you be saying if you were in the room right now with Obamas and Clintons and all these people you have seen in action? I think it's to try and get people to understand that what we're witnessing today in the Middle East is not normal. This level of sectarianism is not normal. People have lived in the Middle East mostly peacefully for centuries. So what has happened today this level of sectarianism is an unintended consequence of the Iraq war. It started, if you like, in 1979 with the Iranian revolution, with Khomeini. You think, well, that only happened because of the coup <laughs> against the democratically elected governments in Iran in the 50s. So it's all of these knock-on effects. But it was the Islamic revolution in Iran that sort of created that level of tension and that fear that Iran was projecting its power. But the Iraq war, the 2003 war, completely changed the balance of power in the region in Iran's favor. And this has triggered this competition between Iran on the one hand and Saudi and the Gulfies on the other, which has led them to support these crazy lunatics in these different countries, turning what are local grievances over poor governance into these regional proxy wars. So this power struggle between Iran and Saudi, people are mobilized through sectarianism. So it's to understand that, not to think this is something in their blood. You know, this is... Is it 30% of marriages in Baghdad were intermarriages? Yeah, when we got there, 30%. I mean, being an Iraqi means you've got Sunni, Shia, all these different relatives, Turkmen, Kurdish, it's a multi-ethnic society. I mean, the tribes, when they migrated from the north and the west to the south, decided to switch from Sunni to Shia because they didn't want to pay taxes to the Ottomans. So Iraqi tribes go both ways. So now you have this big power struggle going on and the Saudis believe that the nuclear deal is America realigning with Iran and, or leaving the region and they're fearful and that makes them behave in unhelpful ways. So my advice to Madam President would be you know, you've got to help rebalance the region because the region is out of balance and the region won't achieve a natural balance of power. It will just go down, 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 down. And it's not contained in the region. ISIS attacks go out, refugee flows go out. So there is a national interest to try and recreate some balance because you can't stop the civil wars. We've got civil wars now in Iraq, Syria, Libya and Yemen. Can't stop the civil wars if you don't de-escalate the regional, and now the American-Russian competition as well. So you've got to try and de-escalate all of that. If you would like to ask Emma a question, uh, 
I've depressed them all. That uh, you usually you put your hand up, but actually tonight you're going to have to get up uh, in our um, special venue. We'll go to my right first. Hello. <coughs> Thank you very much to the Wheeler Centre and the guest. This was absolutely fantastic. You have uh, verified my whole understanding of the last 15 years in the Middle East. I suspect that some of the people in the audience are not so pleased with what you've had to say. On weapons of mass destruction, I've got a book here by Hans Bleeks and he met with Condoleezza Rice in January 2003, shortly before the, the Gulf War, and he says, at this stage, my gut feeling was still that Iraq retained weapons of mass destruction. Now, it turned out he was wrong. Um, George Bush was wrong. Tony Blair was wrong. But I think there was a reasonable expectation amongst people who were in the know that this was a, a matter that was not resolved. And indeed, John Howard. I, I figured I wasn't going to mention John Howard here. Um, do, do you think that uh, following the first Gulf War, it would have been better had they deposed uh, Saddam Hussein then or not? <laughs> you know, a lot of people look at the first Gulf War as a model for war. So it was short, clear objectives, no mission creep, had a good coalition came together, go in, go out. But Saddam was never forced to come and sign a peace agreement, an armistice. And he hailed it as the mother of all battles because he was still in power. And the assumption on the, in the West, President Bush the elder's assumption was the humiliation of such a defeat would lead to him being overthrown. And that's why President Bush called for Iraqis to rise up and overthrow him. So they did rise up. And basically, they thought America was coming to help. And America and the UK were willing to impose a no-fly zone in the north to protect the Kurds. But nothing was done in the south. And with the helicopter gunships, Saddam's Republican forces basically murdered we don't know, 100,000 people in a short period of time. So Saddam was a problem. He had been a problem for the region, a problem for the country for a long time. And when you look at the interrogation reports of Saddam after he was captured, Saddam had this whole deception plan to pretend he had weapons of mass destruction because he wanted to show force because he was worried that Israel or Iran would attack. So there was this whole deception, but he thought that surely the CIA knew that he didn't have them. <laughs> and when you look at the CIA's reports, they fought themselves on the lack of imagination because he did everything, you know, all this stuff with the weapons inspectors, he did everything that looked like he was guilty. His own officers around him, the ones that we captured, thought he had weapons of mass destruction. But he just thought that we obviously knew that he didn't. So it was a very successful deception plan. Mm. Please stand up and uh, here we are. Interested in your own story, I've just recently seen the film Queen of the Desert. 
with Gertrude Bell's story. And I wondered if you'd read that before you headed off into your adventures because <laughs> it's such a timely thing because she was a political advisor in Baghdad at the fall of the Ottoman Empire around the 1920s and drew up a lot of the lines for what we now know as modern uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, etc. And I just wondered whether that had had any influence at all, if you had heard of her before you went there or not. I had heard of her name, but I'd not read anything about her. And when I started working in Kirkuk, one of the sheikhs would call me Miss Bell all the time. <laughs> Every meeting, she is Miss Bell. I thought, what were they going on about? And they said, you know, you are our Miss Bell. Um, Iraqis still remember her, and they remember her fondly. She created the National Museum of Iraq, and she is seen, you know, they don't really remember many of the guys from that period fondly, but she is the one who lived for years in Iraq and died in Iraq. Her grave is in Iraq, and the National Museum is the legacy that she left for the country. Too, but it just seemed to have so many similarities in the stories of just disappearing off into the desert, if you like, and uh, <laughs> creating your stories. So thank you very much. She gets a couple of mentions in your book. Um, all the uh, major uh, players, of course, in the military have call signs, and uh, Colonel Mayville's was Bayonet 6, and General Odieno's was Iron Horse 6, and Emma Sky, is that how they said it all in one word, Emma Sky or Emma Ski? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the way they, they called Emma by her full name all at once, but her call sign was BB, which was British Babe. And uh, I, yeah, I was the only woman with 3,000 male paratroopers, so, you know, they hadn't seen a woman for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any, anyone else? I'm just wanting your comment on surely the American or the US policy towards the Middle East is looking at what benefits them and does a destabilised Middle East benefit the US in terms of armaments, manufacturers and also weakening any other powers that may threaten the US role at the international level? Thank you. Well, a lot of people in the Middle East believe that America is purposefully trying to keep instability in the region, that America is trying to make Sunni and Shia fight each other. You get these conspiracy theories that America supports the Islamic State, and they'll show videos, completely false, fabricated ones of Americans dropping supplies for the Islamic State. Now, this is nonsense. America's interests in the Middle East have always been Israel, oil, prevention of terrorism. Now, oil is not so important to America because of Shell, but oil is obviously still important to the rest of the world. So it's not in America's interest to see instability in the Middle East. This instability is flooding into Europe and really putting pressure on the European Union. It's a meltdown of the European Union because of this. So I do not believe in those 
theories. You can say, yes, it's happy days for the defense industry. They are doing really well out of it. They're selling weapons to everybody. I mean, everybody you look at has got American weapons there. Not necessarily sold to them, but handed on to them. So people can say, well, look, that happens, but that doesn't mean to say that is the intent. America's intent is maintaining status quo, its stability. It is not what we have today. Um, I'm just curious about what you think about the expat community, not just in, I guess, a war zone, but also sort of the aid systems that operate around the world and I don't know, how people respond to other people coming and doing stuff to them and maybe what your thoughts are about that. <coughs> so people that aren't Iraqi or Malawian or whatever coming and being told by experts, this is what you should do. Iraq didn't have your usual sort of the international development crowd turn up because it's too violent. So when you look at Afghanistan, you had that whole lot went out there. In Iraq, that didn't happen because it's not an environment in which people could operate. So most of the foreigners out there would be military or contractors to the military, or private security companies. But I think initially, Iraqis, when they saw these foreigners arrive, were quite excited. They thought within six months, our country would look like Dubai. <laughs> they said, American could put a man on the moon, just what are they going to do to us in, in six months? So initially, there was quite a lot of excitement. And it took a few months, you know, that things would happen, they just couldn't really understand it. And then it would be, you know, how come we haven't got electricity? It must be because Americans don't want us to have electricity. Americans are stealing our oil. So they refused to believe that we were incompetent. They saw it all as conspiracy. <laughs> and it became very difficult to convince them that, no, 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 it's not conspiracy, it is incompetence. <laughs> Much of the debate tends to revolve around the concept of nation building. And the problem is, it seems, that this tends to go from the right to the left as to who thinks it's possible. Obviously, with the invasion of Iraq, people on the right in the U.S. thought that this could be nation building. Then after the surge, now there's people on the left thinking maybe the U.S. should have been doing nation building. What do you really think as the possibilities of nation building, whether it's from the right or the left, or are we just chasing dreams? Well, you get, it's interesting, bedfellows. You've got the neoconservatives and the liberal interventionists, so left and right who came together. And a lot of this was developed during the Balkans that a lot of people went out and did nation building in the Balkans. And there were some successes from that. So there was a sense, yes, we know how to do this because we've done it in the Balkans. Then when 9-11 happened, it became this fear that if there are ungoverned spaces, you get terrorist groups that will attack us. So you've got those who believe, yes, we know how to do it. We've got the capability. And we need to do it because we need to make sure there are no ungoverned spaces. So this brought all these different peoples together. And 
you know, there is a problem of places where there is no government. We can look at Libya, can look at Yemen, you can look at parts of Iraq and Syria and think where there is no government as such, there are chaotic conditions in which these crazy organizations such as Islamic State grow and thrive. So what do you do about those spaces? That's the real challenge. Can't just think, let's ignore them and they'll go away, because they don't, they spread. So what can you do and how can you do it? And that's the challenge that we're all left grasping with. So can you help build up the capacity of the regimes? Well, you think in Syria, the main problem is the regime. It's a regime that's mass murdering its people. So there are no easy solutions to any of this. And you can look at Iraq at the hubris, and I think my own story just tells of that, you know, no planning whatsoever for the day after. You think, that is crazy. But then you get to the do-nothing extreme where you stand by and a president mass murders his people. So there is no one simple solution to this. But obviously in each situation it requires some form of peace agreement among the elites. Unless you get them to agree, then you've really got a problem. And so mediating, trying to sort out the politics is really, really key. Because if you don't sort out the politics, all the other work that you do, developing the institutions, just will fall apart, as we saw with the Iraqi army. The politics in Iraq was okay, the army would have been okay. Politics fell apart, the army fell apart. So they're related. Our time is up, it's gone. Oh no, really quick. Oh, you get into so much trouble when you do this. The last question. I'm just um, interested in your thoughts on the upcoming American election. <laughs> Thank you. So if, um, if you have a sense of Hillary Clinton, presuming she gets in, of what her thoughts will be about this whole area. Well, when you look at you know, the American elections, you look at all those different candidates, there is only one candidate with the experience and the expertise to be president, and her name is not Donald. <laughs> she, whether you like her policies or not, that's another issue, but she is very competent, she's very capable, and she's got really experienced people around her who are very impressive. So in my mind, we all have to hope and pray that she is president, because at least she's got an understanding of the rest of the world and a willingness and a belief that America has a role to play in the rest of the world. So I think the pendulum, which was kind of over here with President Bush, went over there with President Obama, hopefully under President Clinton, will come back in the middle again. Because a world without America is a pretty scary place. When you look at the withdrawal of America from the Middle East, and Putin strutting around, and ISIS, you think, whoa, is that the sort of world that you want to live in? So it's a changing world, but a world, I believe, in which America still has an important role to play. Thank you, Emma Scott. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, as always, Sally Warhaft. Next time, a different perspective on that changing world through a lens both journalistic and personal. In two weeks, we're joined by New York Times columnist and foreign correspondent Roger Cohen. Until then, leave us a note at our website, on iTunes or wherever else you happen to find us. 
and take care.